Our scripture reading this morning is from 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 7. You can follow along in your chair Bibles or on the screens behind me. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Please pray with me. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we may hear your word with joy. Amen. Well, good morning. One of my uh, earliest memories as a kid was a family vacation that we decided to take to visit my Uncle Morris, who lived in Idaho. He was actually a lumberjack, and he was okay. Anybody get that reference, Monty Python? No? Okay. Anyhow. But uh, anyway, Uncle, Uncle Morris and his family lived in, in northern Idaho, and he was a lumberjack, and we decided to go visit him one day. It was like a, one year, and it was about a 2,000-mile uh, trip to kind of go up there, circle around, and come back to Kansas. We did it in 10 days, and, and with three kids under the ages of about uh, six. So it was, a, it was a lot for my mom and dad to tackle. And on the way back, we decided to swing through Utah. We'd never been there. And uh, we, as we went through Utah City, we went by the Great Salt Lake. And uh, if you've never been there, it's quite an interesting place. Um, and my mom uh, was in the car with Dad, and she said, hey, Dwayne, pull over. And he's like, what? You know, I, I want to I, I go and dip my toes in the salt. I want to I float in the salt lake, you know, because the buoyancy is really easy to float. And dad kind of shook his head, but mom didn't ask for much. So he pulled over on the side of the interstate and mom, I think, went back into the trailer and she came out in a swimming suit. She sprinted a couple hundred yards to the lake and she floated on the lake for about 10 minutes or so. She came back and we drove on our merry way to Kansas. It's really stuck in my head. My first memory. Well, there's a big body of water in the Bible that has a lot of parallels to the great salt lake. Only it's like on steroids. It's the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea is the saltiest body of water on Earth. It's nine times saltier than uh, the oceans. It's so salty that fish can't live in it. It's so salty that nobody really wants to do anything. There aren't, there aren't these vacation houses around this lake, this body of water. It's, it's a big body of water, 10 miles by 50. The only people who are drawn to the Dead Sea are tourists because they can, like my mom, go and they can float on it very, very easily. Just float right on top with no effort whatsoever. Now, interestingly, there is fresh water that flows into the Dead Sea. Even though it's called the Dead Sea, there's water, fresh water that comes into it continuously from the Jordan River and from several other streams that feed into it. But the problem the Dead Sea has is that it has no outlet. The water comes in, but nothing goes out. And because of that, the fresh water comes to sit, the salt content is concentrated, the water evaporates, and nothing can thrive because there's no outlet. That's kind of a metaphor, isn't it, for, for us as human beings in our life with Christ? And it's kind of a warning. God every day pours into our lives countless blessings, his love, his presence, his forgiveness, health and family and friends. So on. He, he pours into our life over and over blessings and resources and provision. But if there is no outflow, no outlet, if we don't pass those blessings on to others, over time we begin to stagnate spiritually. We begin to become self-focused. And the good things that God wants to do in our life, instead of growing, begin to wilt and die away. So how do we avoid that dynamic? How do we avoid being a Dead Sea person? 
How do we avoid that from happening? We're going to look at a few brief verses in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. We heard a few verses from chapter 9 just a minute ago, but I want us to look at three verses from chapter 8. And it might be helpful, we're going to use this metaphor throughout the message, to picture yourself that life with Christ is like standing in the middle of a river. It's a river of grace. And we're to be channels of God's grace as it flows through us to the rest of the world. So let's start with um, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 7 through 9. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So what does he mean when he says, For your sakes, Jesus became poor. Well, as you read through his letters, it's pretty clear what he's talking about. He's talking about the incarnation. You know, the idea that God, that Christ in heaven came down to earth. He gave up his privileges and and, 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 and his his rights up in heaven. He came to earth as one of us. He, He lowered himself to become one of us. He became poor for our sake. Paul, Paul spells it out in greater detail in Philippians chapter two. Paul writes this in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God, something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. We're going to pause there for a second. Jesus is in heaven, enjoying comfort and glory. He doesn't have to experience hunger or thirst or pain or grief or loneliness or sadness. And he decides to give up that, that privilege, to leave it all behind to come to planet Earth. That's at the first point that he makes himself poor. Passage continues. By taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. So Jesus is born as a, a poor baby boy to a poor teenage um, a peasant woman and a carpenter, humble father. And within the first couple of years of his life, they become refugees as they run away from Herod and his, his, uh, his persecution. And Jesus himself said about what it meant to follow him. He said in Matthew 8, paraphrasing, you want to follow me? You want to be my disciple? I have no place to lay my head and you won't either if you follow me. But Jesus is not done giving up his riches on our behalf because it says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Jesus finally reaches the place where he lays down his very life to pay for our sins. Returning to 2 Corinthians 8, Paul tells us this, so that through his poverty, you might become rich. That was Jesus' motivation. Through his poverty, through his giving up all these things, he did this so that we could become rich. Rich in what way? Like, like Warren Buffett or Bill Gates? No. Is, is, is Paul endorsing the prosperity gospel, this idea that if you follow Jesus, you can be healthy, wealthy, and wise? No, he's not saying that. That's not scriptural anyway. He's saying rich in terms of a relationship with God. Rich in terms of, of forgiveness, of eternal life, 
of, of, of the fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ, the Holy Spirit living within, within you. All these and more are spiritual riches that we receive from Jesus because he became poor so we could become rich. But God doesn't just give us spiritual riches. It goes on to say this in Romans 8, where Paul writes, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him also graciously give us all things? All things, physical life, family, friends, a beautiful world in which to live, the ability to to work and have a career and, and make a living, so on and so forth. God gives us all things. God is tremendously generous. So how are we to respond to this extravagant generosity of God? This, this, this humbling that Jesus Christ did. He became poor so we could become rich. How are we to live gratefully and joyfully? There's a great book written by a, a farmer's wife uh, up in Ontario, uh, Canada. She helped raise six kids and planted corn with her husband. And she wrote a book called uh, 1,000 Gifts. It was a New York Times bestseller. Anne Voskamp is her name. And she explains the theme of the book this way. She writes, All my growing up years, I was taught it's important to be grateful. I heard it from my parents. I heard it from my teachers. I heard it from my pastor at the church I went to. But it never made me a more grateful person. Until finally one day I realized that I have to do something about it. I got, it, I got to work at being grateful. And so she decided to start keeping a journal, a list of everything she saw in the course of the day for which she could be thankful to God for. It could be the snow falling on a pristine winter morning. It could be um, something happening good in the life of one of her kids. It could be a kind gesture of a neighbor. The point is, is that she decided and she, that she would have to work at being grateful. We do too. As we do this, something important happens. Daily gratitude, like a spiritual discipline, a spiritual exercise, it removes uh, any barriers. It, it tears down any, any dams in our lives that, that, that hold back or bottle up the flow of God's blessing through our lives. And gratitude opens an outlet in our lives that helps us be more generous, more outward focused, and experience more joy and peace. And in all this, Paul says, our motivation is to be love. And our role model for generosity is Jesus. Verse 8. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it to the earnestness of others. So Paul, he's challenging the, the Corinthians to be generous, but he doesn't do it by demanding things of them. He says, I'm not commanding you. Paul knows, in other words, you can't force people to be generous. People have to be motivated to be generous. And Paul says, you say you love Jesus. You say you love others. Let's have a little test. And the test was this. Um, Paul was aware that there was this famine happening centered around Jerusalem. And, 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 the, and, the, and the believers there, primarily Jewish, were going through a very difficult time. They were dying of hunger. They didn't have the basic necessities of life. And so Paul was traveling from city to city, from church to church, that he had helped plant. And he was taking up a collection, a love offering, a relief fund to help these brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And he's about to come to Corinth and take up this offering. So he writes them about some other issues going on in their church. But he also includes this to give them advance warning, to, to, to advance notice so they can think and plan accordingly. 
And Paul anticipates some of the questions they might have. We're hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem. We have our own issues. They're Jewish people. We're Gentiles. We don't need to really be involved in this. But Paul says, do it for love. Do it for love for Christ and love um, for others. And in a sense, Paul says, if you're motivated by love, you will be generous, independent of your circumstances or your tax bracket or your take home pay. In fact, Paul drives this this point home in, in verse eight with a very not so subtle comparison between the Corinthians and this group of people called the Macedonians. The Macedonians, they were fellow believers and it was kind of the rural area, several hundred miles away, and they, and they were very humble and dirt poor people. And Corinth was more of a cosmopolitan city. It was it was upscale. Uh, it was it was it was in it was in Greece, and and um, they were relatively affluent. And in verse one, Paul says, "We want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches." And then there's some interesting math. He says, out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. So joy plus poverty equals generosity. He says, verse three, for I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the saints. So essentially, he's challenging them. These humble Macedonians gave sacrificially. And he's challenging them to do the same. You know, God has designed us to be a blessing to others. And in light of what Christ, who was rich beyond our comprehension, gave up and became poor so that we could become rich in blessings, promises, well, how can we not live generously and joyfully and sacrificially? Before I, want to, before I close, I want to say a couple of things. First, I, I want you to know that I know that this is a church full of very generous and faithful people who, who give sacrificially. Thank you for that. And second, I know that people don't always feel comfortable when a pastor speaks uh, about money. Most pastors don't really get real excited about it either, to be frank. But if we are to take our cues from Jesus, then we must. It's a matter of discipleship. 16 of Jesus' 38 parables deal with with money, possessions, and giving. Over 2,000 verses in the Bible deal with money, possessions, and or giving. Why is that? Why such a heavy emphasis upon this sensitive topic that we all feel a little uncomfortable with at times? I think it's because as human beings... We almost instinctively want to hang on to the things that we have. I think it has something to do with our need for control and security. I think it has something to do with, with, with the power that those things can exert over us when, when they're prioritized and valued wrongly. I think that's why Jesus in the Bible addressed it so much. We can put our trust in those things, make them our idols and worship them instead of God, who is the giver of those things. And Jesus said this in a very pithy and profound way. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. So the question I want to close with is, where is my heart? Where is our heart? What does it trust in? 
What does it love? And Paul seems to say that our attitude and action regarding our possessions goes a long way in answering those questions. God calls us to live generously in light of what Christ has done for us. And it's for the good of others, but it's also for our own spiritual health. And we are called to follow his example, to pour out our lives, to be a channel of God's grace and love and blessing. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the ways that you bless us, um, many of which we're not even aware or that we take for granted. But, Father, we, we, we are so thankful. Uh, Lord, uh, help us to discipline ourselves to, to, um, to take a daily accounting of, of what you've done for us, how you bless us, to, to be grateful, Lord. Um, Lord, I pray that you would help us to grow in our joy as we, as we, as, as we give back to others and, and back to you. And, uh, Father, we just pray that, uh, that you would just grow within us a, a culture of generosity in our lives, in our homes, uh, in, in our jobs, and certainly, yes, Lord, in our church. We thank you for, uh, for the way you have blessed us, Lord. And we offer ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh,